most planners today worry so much about you when you're retiring, they don't think about you when you're living. And I think it's much more important that a good wealth manager helps you live rich, not just die rich, because most advisors are constantly thinking about some future date 30 or 20 or 50 years from now, when in reality, you want to make smart choices right now, because I don't want you to be like the entrepreneurs that I've met who ruined marriages and have failed relationships with their children because they thought they were working to this $10 million number, whatever the number is, and they suddenly get there and go, oh my God, my life's over, and this didn't make it better. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. If you're new to Crazy Money, this is the show where we explore the connection between money and happiness, work and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. And today's guest is both an expert and has an incredible money journey that I know you're going to want to hear. His name is Joe Duran. He is the head of Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management Division. That's the wealth management division where they help wealthy individuals and or family manage their resources to help them live the life they want to live. And I mention that because that insight that money is a tool by which we serve the larger purpose of our lives is an essential insight that has been a big differentiator in Joe's career. Let me tell you where he came from. He grew up poor in a one-room house in Rhodesia, the African country that is now known as Zimbabwe, during very violent and politically tumultuous times. He came to the United States with just $200 in his pocket and a commitment to be wealthy by the time he was 25. He'll share more insights into that story and that commitment. He willed his way to a successful career in the financial management business. Through his entrepreneurial effort, helped build, run, and eventually sell Centurion Capital to General Electric in 2001 when he was just 34 years old, which netted him a very substantial bounty. He had a big payout. And there he was, a young man who had grown up in almost, you could say, desperate times, who grew up in desperate circumstances. Here he was with a huge pile of cash. And you might think that that made him feel secure, that finally he had achieved what he'd always wanted to achieve. And so he could just sit back and relax. Instead, what happened is that making this money freaked him out. It blew his mind and he found having money to be far more disconcerting than the effort in building toward that outcome. Huh, are we sensing a theme here on this show? I think we are. And realizing that money itself wasn't the goal, Joe relaunched himself back into the wealth management business and founded United Capital, a company which he built over the next 15 years and eventually sold to Goldman Sachs in 2019. And the cornerstone philosophy of United Capital was that they need to understand their clients better than the clients understood themselves, that they really needed to start the relationship with a foundation of not how much money do you have and how much do you want to die with, but what kind of a life do you want to live and what role does money play therein? In what way can money be the fuel to help you achieve the bigger goals of your life? In today's conversation, Joe and I discuss everything from philosophy, immigration, entrepreneurship, taxes, wealth management, definitely talk a lot about parenthood, but it's all about values. It's all about how the values we have about money, the relationship we have about money inform who we are, inform our strengths, 
definitely inform our weaknesses, our paranoias, and how all those things show up in our personal life and how that's relevant to the wealth management business. Whether you know anything about wealth management, whether you have a wealth manager or not, I know you're going to find this conversation really interesting because Joe is a deep, deep thinker. He is a big time doer and his insights will not only inform you, I think they might just inspire you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Duran. Joe Duran, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Joe, when you were a kid, who did you think was wealthy? Well, I grew up with very little. So I thought this guy called Graham Young, who was one of my good friends, and I'd go to his house and they had a house with a pool. The dad was a bank manager and they drove a new, relatively new Datsun. Now they're called Nissan. And I would look at his life and he had dinner at the table and he had a nice lunch at school. And I thought, wow, that's rich. So that was the, what I thought rich looked like. Where was this? This was in Zimbabwe. Now I'm thinking back to being 13 or 14 when my parents were just divorced and we were all living in one room house. So it was not great. So to me, that was my first notation of, wow, there's somebody living the life. It was a measure of relativity. It was somebody who had more than you as opposed to some absolute number. Yeah, I think that's, especially as a child, you know, you base your own situation, compare yourself to those around you. I think that's true for most human beings. It certainly was true until I learned, and we'll talk more about this, that your perspective is really affected by the perspective of others. And extroverts typically gauge their own value by the way other people perceive them. And introverts have their own internal measure. I'm an extrovert, so I tend to gauge what I'm doing well by how the people perceive me, which makes me incredibly insecure, of course. <laughs> but only you. You're the only person out there like uh -huh, that, right? right. So I heard you say in an interview that when you were young, you aspired to be like J.R. Ewing on the TV show Dallas. What part of his lifestyle appealed to you? I love the, just this person who was making big, important decisions and he'd walk into a boardroom and people rotated around his decisions. I didn't love it. He was a bad guy, cheated on his wife and was an alcoholic. So none of that was that appealing to me. <laughs> but I just thought this idea of this big business person was really appealing. And at the time, uh, I was at school and I was also working as a DJ on the weekends and as a night manufacturing person in the evenings managing a production and it was not great in the summers i'd work as a apprentice at a motorboat engine shop so it was very dirty work so the idea of doing just clean work sounded awesome when did your life plan come into focus did you start to say hey i'm going to do this and I, i'm going to work hard and if i work hard at this i can go to a good college if i go to a good college i'll have a good job no no actually i have a very clear view of this you know interesting i was with a couple of friends and this is going to sound weird, but I remember the moment we were sitting. I was probably 16 years old. We started partying at a much younger age there in Zimbabwe. So we were quite young. And my friends and I were talking about what it meant to be rich and when you wanted to be rich. And I said, you know, the problem is everyone gets rich really late in life. I don't want that to be me. I'd rather get rich really early and do whatever it takes so that I'm young when I'm rich. And I want to be rich by the time I'm 35. That's the number I put out there. And that for me was the very beginning of an idea. And by the way, that night, I wrote down what needed to be true for me at 20. I was 15, 16 at the time. What do I need to be at 25? Where do I need to be at 30? 
And believe it or not, I still do it. I have my plan up where I want to be at 55. And so having five-year perspective helps frame every decision I make today. It's the secret to every success I've ever had. I have a few secrets, but this is one really important one. I found all my friends were very obsessed about what they were doing today. But I was constantly obsessed about, is this helping me get to where I want to be at 20? And it was clear for me at 20, I wanted to be in America. I wanted to be in college. And I wanted to be laying the groundwork to being successful. It couldn't happen in Zimbabwe. I had too much baggage. I was an awful student. And I had no possibility of climbing out. You know, it's a very structured and very class-based society. It's very hard to break out. That's true of most of the world. America is quite unique. Of course, it was just a dream for me from the books I read and the TV shows I watched. I didn't know it was true. But that was how I made my decisions then. And my whole life, when I get to 18 or 19, I then said, where do I want to be at 25? When I get to 23 or 24, I'd reset it for 30. And I would find I could accomplish most of what I wanted to do in a much shorter time frame. But every decision, when it comes up, I'd always go, does this take me closer or further from being where I want to be at that point. And that perspective has been a huge advantage. Most of my friends never got to where I did. Many of them never left Zimbabwe. And I would say it wasn't that I was smarter. I just understood the value of persistence. And I'm a very determined human being, I guess. And so even though I was pretty mediocre in almost everything I did, I was quite determined in doing it as well as I could. When did working in the financial business make it onto that list? never really happened. Interestingly enough, I went to college. I started with doing a degree in marketing and I thought, I don't feel like I'm learning anything. So I decided I should do something more substantial. I started with accounting. I hated it, but I'd done enough accounting. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be an accountant, but maybe I'll do finance. So I ended up doing a degree in finance as well. So I left with a degree in in finance and marketing. I wish I could tell you it was some grand plan. It wasn't. But then I graduated with a degree. I'm like, well, given that skill set, I should be in the money business. And it wasn't some particular passion for money. I just knew that I had to work and make a living. And it seemed like people in finance did quite well. So I wish I could say I was driven by my passion or that that's what leads to success. It wasn't. It was the needs for survival. I'd met a gorgeous woman who I've now been married to for almost 30 years. And I just thought, I got to support this woman. And she seems like <laughs> I got to make a living. That's so old-fashioned, Joe. I know. It's really old-fashioned. And she was from West LA. So I just went up and down California meeting money managers saying, I'll work for nothing. I need to make a living. And I had a one-year work visa, uh, which you get when you come here from Africa. And I found a job as an intern, and we built that business and went on to become president of that business within a few years. We grew from 30 million in assets to several billion in assets. And by the time I was 34, nine years later, we sold to General Electric. And so, you know, it was a remarkable, like unimaginable level of outcome. You know, we sold for over $100 million. And we had some partners and everything else. So I did quite well, but more than I could ever have imagined. I would have thought in my old prior life at 14 or 15, that would be it. And I know this is a question, Lisa, did you feel that way? The answer is absolutely not. I did not feel accomplished or successful. In fact, I felt more insecure than, than ever in my life. Why is that? Well, it's not just me. I want to share a story because I think it's quite valid here. I had a five-year contract, General Electric, and very quickly realized it wasn't for me. I wasn't well-suited for that world. 
And uh, so within six months, I came out to my wife. I'm like, oh, I think I can't do this. She said, thank God you've been an ass since the day you sold the company and you can't leave soon enough. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm getting paid a lot of money. She's like, you're not going to be a general electric working at 40 years old. You're going to just go do it again. But I had a tune on compete. So I went to graduate school. Again, not because I needed to, because I was a CFA and a built and sold a company. But I realized that if at 40, I wanted to have built another company going to graduate school in that two-year window, and I went to Columbia and Berkeley, would be useful for raising capital, for building credibility, and so too would writing a book. So I wrote a book called Start It, Sell It, and Make a Mint. I hate the title, but they gave me an advance to write it. <laughs> and I interviewed 100 entrepreneurs who built and sold companies, and we got the 20 rules you needed to get right. But I started every interview with the same beginning, which was, when you sold the company, how did it feel? And you can imagine everyone saying it was amazing. It was the American dream. And I said, I don't feel that way at all. And can I tell you something? Every male, female, regardless of race, regardless of their circumstances or what country they were in, said the same thing. Me either. It was like a death in the family. I sacrificed my marriages. I sacrificed the relationship with my kids. I always believed that getting to this magic outcome would make me feel better, and it didn't. And I lost all sense of purpose and meaning in my life. And that was an eye-opening experience for me. It's basically like hitting retirement, but I did it at 34 and realized, like, oh my God, the way you get there matters more than where you get to. It was then that I got this idea, you know, money is only fuel. And you cannot think of it as a destination. Just like you go on vacation and say, well, I'm going to that gas station. The more money you have, the more choices you have, the more choices you have in life. And so you can't ignore it. It's a resource you need in order to travel. But you've got to think about how you go, where you go, how you do it and who you do it with. And if you don't, if you get distorted and you think about money as the destination, you will become a slave to it. And I have seen this in my life. I've dealt with wealthy people and poor people my entire life as a professional. And I can say without exception, the people who worry most about the money ignore the things that really matter in their lives. And that is a truly sad outcome. And so again, I can tell you, it was the universal restraint I heard from everyone. It was true for me too, that I had become so tied with the, with the prestige of building a company and being the founder and CEO of it and the wealth that came with it, that when I lost that, I lost all identity. I interviewed the best-selling author, Ryan Holiday, who writes about stoicism in, in several different books. And he said that when he was 22, 23, like you, he had a goal. And his goal was to be a millionaire by age 25. And he told me when he hit that goal, the first thing he realized was that nobody throws you a parade. He said it more colorfully than that, but that yeah. was the outcome. It was this disappointment that other yeah. people didn't treat him differently just because he had hit some arbitrary goal he had made for himself. Did that ring true for your experience it as well? It definitely does. You know, look, the truth is we're living a solitary life. It's hard to really grasp this, but I spend a lot of time studying philosophy and a lot of time thinking about money and how it affects people. And I'm a huge believer in radical ownership that you are the sum of your choices, as Albert Camus says, and it's true. When you die, all that will be left are the sum of the choices you made along the way. And, and money, if you have it, gives you the luxury, and it is a luxury, to live the life that you said you wanted to live. 
But many people lose sight of that. And by the way, the people that are happiest, that are most satisfied in life, are the ones who make short-term sacrifices in order to live the ideals that they said mattered to them. That if they said, I'm here to share and be with the people I care about, they prioritize that above the money and the job. But you can only do that if you've really chosen the right ideals. I had an idea 15 years ago about what my perfect life was, but I didn't really think about what went into every day. I had no idea how much I valued work and my status among within this very prestigious industry, fast changing industry, how much I was learning and the camaraderie I had at the office. And I didn't realize that until I quit. Well, I learned that as well, you know, so I built another company. And can I tell you the craziest thing when people say, why'd you do it? I'm like, well, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I had two young daughters and I have three amazing young ladies. And I'm like, I don't want them to think of me as some guy who sits around at Starbucks and made some money at 34 years old and never did anything else. So I should just go start a company. And hopefully, I also was curious, was I just lucky the first time around? And maybe I've been lucky a second time around. But I just thought, you know what? I just got to find something to do. And a good friend of mine had a great expression. And it's really been true for me. I was very, very in a dark hole, honestly. My, and, and as I mentioned, I have the most incredible marriage to Jen. But at the time... She said, you should be happier than anyone. I've never seen you more miserable. And it was a loss of purpose. And I was out hiking with a friend of mine, lifelong friend who I've run the bulls with in Spain many times. And we were walking up in the mountains and he said, Joe, you must be in heaven. You should be so excited. I'm like, I'm really not. And he said, you know, Joe, some people are meant to sit on an island sipping Mai Tais and some people are meant to spend their life paddling to the island. And I think you might need to be a person out on the lake paddling to the island. And it was really true for me. I am a human who's not made for a life of leisure. It's just not in my DNA. And neither are you. You need to do something. And by the way, everyone has to have a purpose in this world. I have learned one thing. Try to not have preconceived notions about what that is. So I try to approach every day with a similar mindset, which is, be open-minded to the fact that everything you've held true might not be true today or tomorrow or the next day. You know, being receptive to change and adapting to your value system adjusting is really important because I don't know how I'm going to feel when I have grandkids. I know that having a third daughter was something I wasn't overly excited about, but it's been <laughs> one of the most additive things in my life. Right, right. And you find people who are most dogmatic and close-minded, and it typically happens when they get to my age, you know, 50, and they become close-minded. And they say, this is not who I am. And the most interesting people I've ever met don't just drink a certain kind of beer. They're also people that are constantly evolving and are open to the facts that, hey, I'm this now, and I might be something different tomorrow. But why is this such a surprise? Some of these people you're talking about that you've worked with who have built these companies, yourself included, are some of the smartest, hardworking people out there. And yet it's a surprise to everybody when they have an exit event and they quit and they just hit a brick wall of their own inactivity or whatever. Like it's a surprise that they need to live for more than just that accomplishment. Why is this a mystery until we run into it? Is it because we're afraid to talk about wealth as not being a panacea to all of society's ills because it's rude to people who don't have that luxury to hit it? Because well, there's bigger problems think, in the world? I think there's more, there's more than that. We work so hard 
on the outside world and we spend so little time in our inside world. And what I found to be true is we're uncomfortable in our own skin and we're uncomfortable asking ourselves, what really makes me feel happy? What makes me feel good? Because the answers are often uncomfortable. And it might prove you've thrown away 10 years of your life chasing things that aren't, don't matter to you. And the more entrenched you are in the choices you've made, the harder it is to accept that, oh my God, I've made some really bad choices and I own them. That's why, again, this idea of radical ownership, if you just say, look, we will make mistakes. That's part of life. And your job is to learn from them and to grow from them and understand I needed the 10 years of mistakes to get to this point where I was open to the fact that I made 10 years of mistakes. And unfortunately, in order to get there, you have to put yourself in the position where you learn what matters to you. You didn't know all those things mattered to you. Even though your friends and your family knew that they mattered to you, you didn't want to hear it. You won't hear it until you're ready to hear it. And if you have kids, you know that that's true. No amount of advice is very useful until they're ready to hear it. And so, you know, learning, it's a self-sport. And in order to learn, you have to question yourself. But we do not get taught at school anywhere in the educational system, and I've been to some pretty good schools, that you stare at yourself first and ask, how am I interacting with the world? We expect the world to mold our needs rather than understand the world does its own thing, and so do you. So concentrate on you because it's the only thing you have control over in your life is you and your reactions to what happens to you. And this idea of focusing on what you can control and having total understanding of it, not power of it, because you will not have power over your feelings, but training your intellect, which is different than your mind, understanding that you are not your body, you're not your mind, you are the thing that's experiencing all those things and training that and listening to it and knowing when it's unhappy and when you, the sentient being that's living it, is making a choice that you're going to regret, understanding that and then learning from it. Again, just understanding all of life is a voyage. Money will give you more choices, but it will not bring you happiness. It will not. I promise you there's nobody who's got money. There is a moment, a charge when it hits your bank account that there's no denying. And then there's a moment where you spend your life looking at it and going, is it still there? Is it still there? <laughs> then there's learning just, and I just, going... I just did that. <laughs> yeah, and so there's learning. Staring at it's not going to change it. No, no. What's really going on? What's really going on? Something underneath you is burning with insecurity and concern or unhappiness or fear or whatever else. And that's really hard to do. It's painful to spend time staring at yourself and really unpacking why am I feeling this? And what happens is we reflect. We take away our attention from the thing that's really hurting us and focus on other things. We're going to come back to all these themes because they show up in your business. But before we dive into that, I don't assume that everybody listening to this knows exactly what wealth managers do. So can you explain the industry you're in and the services you provide? Well, the industry is kind of confusing because there are people who are really in the brokerage business. They buy and sell securities for you. They buy bonds and mutual funds, much of which you can do yourself, by the way, if you go to any of the big custodians. Is that what you did when you started your career? Were you more of a retail broker? We were really in the managing of wealth, which is the second part. So the second thing you can do is hire somebody, a fiduciary or a registered investment advisor. And what they do is they basically take your money and invest it on your behalf. 
And that's what we did. So we would hire managers and put together portfolios that included everything. So rather than me selling you a stock, I built you a portfolio for you. And I would hire outside managers and ETFs to put it together for you. I'd allocate it for you and I'd rebalance and make sure you had what you needed. So I was a concierge to invest your money. That was the industry, by the way, for the vast majority of the history of the industry. It was really people selling securities to individuals, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but they'd make their commission and move on. The industry evolved to what became really advice business where you would hire a person for a fee, typically around 1%. It used to be two or three in the old days, but typically around 1%. And they will give you a portfolio. They'll manage it for you. And they hopefully will deliver a performance that's adequate and rebalance and send you liquidity when you need it. The industry has now evolved beyond that to really a lot of wealth managers providing what we consider financial planning so that it fits in with a financial plan that maps out your financial life and makes sure that your money is invested and saved and spent in a way that is consistent and helps you to make smart choices along the way. And by the way, every financial plan you've ever seen is wrong the day it is written because it has assumptions that will not turn out to be true. Like nobody knows when you're going to die. Nobody knows you're getting married or divorced. But I can assure you, your plan probably doesn't include one of you getting cancer or one of your kids getting married at a certain age, you just don't know this stuff. What, how are you going to feel about your grandkids? All the things that are going to happen in life, there is no plan that will anticipate all the things that will happen or when they will happen. So what's the value of a plan? It's really a decision-making framework so that when you face the unexpected things that happen, you can make the more optimal decision with everything you know at that given time. That's the role of a good advisor, a good wealth manager. We took it a step further to actually identify your values and what you care about because for me, goals change too. You know, the minute you go to Europe for the first time, your goals change. The minute your grandchild is born, your goals change, which hopefully won't happen for me for a bit yet. Uh, but your goals adapt. And so what should be true is that your values are fairly consistent. They might evolve. And we do this for all of our, of all of our clients, thousands of clients. And the number one value across our client set is to spend time with people I care about. Well, if I can help identify that's what matters to you and your spouse, then we can encourage you to take your vacations while your kids are young and not save for retirement when they don't want to see you. And these are the things most planners today worry so much about you when you're retiring. They don't think about you when you're living. And I think it's much more important that a good wealth manager helps you live rich, not just die rich, because most advisors are constantly thinking about some future date 30 or 20 or 50 years from now, when in reality, you want to make smart choices right now because I don't want you to be like the entrepreneurs that I've met who ruined marriages and have failed relationships with their children because they thought they were working to this $10 million number, whatever the number is, and they suddenly get there and go, oh my God, my life's over, and this didn't make it better. So the voyage matters more. And a good wealth advisor really has one job above all else. They understand you better than you understand yourself and help you make optimal choices. That's what they do. They bring you perspective so you don't go down bland alleys that will harm you. And they bring expertise to understand you and say, here is a choice where you're going to harm yourself and regret it. So they don't come in telling you it's going to be great and I'll perform the market. That's not a value. What is a value is to help be additive to the way you make decisions. So it seems the quantitative part of this business has been automated. It's been commoditized. 
Anyone can do it. We all have access to the same managers. We all have access to very similar analytics. And I can explain why we at Goldman Sachs do it better than anyone else. But the truth is, there's plenty of good stuff out there. But it seems that when you started the company that eventually brought you to Goldman Sachs, the round two for you after your 34-year-old yeah, exit, Capital, yeah. you started United Capital and you had an insight that was different than what most of the people in the industry were doing. And, and It how- was very different. I did not want to be in financial planning. I wanted to be in financial life management. And we created this category because I just said, look, I'm not helping those entrepreneurs or my old clients by talking more about the money. I've got to talk about life. And what matters to you? And understanding, as I shared my philosophy, the happiest people are the ones whose lives unfold as closely as possible to the ideal life they imagined. And so it meant creating tools and systems to understand your biases about money and to optimize your decision making. Yeah. How do you scale that personal knowledge? Because, I mean, it's one thing for me and you to sit down and have a meal together or even play golf together. but Uh, But how do you do that to the tune of thousands of clients? We partnered with behavioral economists and technologists to do behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is a methodology of interpreting how people think and feel about financial choices. And we did that by, we have something called the money mind, where you can go through and then seven questions will tell you whether your natural bias when it comes to money is to spend, to enjoy life, or to protect yourself, or to take care of the people you care about. Because money only does three things in this world helps you avoid pain, helps you enjoy life somewhat, and it helps you take care of the people you care about. That's all the money does. So simplifying it into simple language and then articulating what is your bias. If you have three buckets to put money in, when you're stressed out, where do you want to fill? Many successful people, about 50% of the hundreds of thousands of people who've done this process, go first to protection. And so, you know, my wife and I have very different priorities. My priority is to protect her priority is to enjoy and give. So whenever we have a fight about money, it's always the same fight. She's going, we should go for longer. We should spend more. We should treat everybody. And I'll be going, oh my God, what happens when this goes wrong and this goes wrong? And it's, this is our safety net. Every argument's the same. By the way, in your household, you're going to have the same arguments about money. And they always go back to one thing. Financial choices are statements of your values. So if your advisor doesn't understand what you value and you don't understand what you value, then you will have fights. And by the way, knowing your values won't avoid the fights, but they'll make them easier to deal with because you will know, Jen, my wife knows, hey, Joe, if I don't speak to the fact that we're going to be responsible and still be protected, he's going to have a conniption over making this choice. She'll start every discussion by going, honey, I want you to know I've been very prudent about this. I've been very careful. And this is why this is good for you. How have you learned to relax about these things? Because I know that I couldn't imagine 20 years ago that I would be fighting about money today, given the difference in resources Uh that I have two decades later. And yet it still comes up because no matter how much you have, there's still finite resources and infinite desires, right? Of course. And look, and the and truth it, is, you will never have as much as you, as you in your mind need. By the way, in America, that's especially true because there's always someone with a little more. When everyone says, how much is the perfect amount of money? Just a little more. It's the same as like my hair. You know, if I could just have a little bit more, I'd be psyched. I'd like to have as much hair as you have. Uh-huh. Then I'd be happy. <laughs> okay. I'd be happy. So here's the issue. It never goes away. 
and this is why understanding yourself, it's, I know it's a little philosophical, but it's never going to go away. That burning in my belly every time I spend money that I'm making my life and myself less secure, it will always be there because I grew up with nothing. Now, by the way, there are plenty of people who grew up with everything who still feel that way. There is no correlation we found between why you feel this way and the way you grew up. But what is true is if you have a strong bias, more money doesn't take that away. Now, you might think, well, I guess that wasn't enough money. 50 was enough. I need to go to 100. <laughs> right, right. And so that's why the people who obsess and get to 100 and go, oh, my God, it's not 100. I need 200. And the same is true about, oh, this boat's not big enough. I need a bigger boat. Or it's not these shoes. I need another one. Of, or I need this Birkin bag or whatever it is. Whatever the thing you think is going to bring you the happiness, it's not. Because nothing external will bring you happiness. It's very hard to appreciate that, but it's true. Nothing outside can bring you happiness. Happiness is just a feeling. And so all you can strive for is satisfaction. And what that means, and Kahneman did great work on this, by the way, behavioral economist who taught at Berkeley and is now today at Princeton. And he's done some great work on this, that you should not strive for happiness because you can get that by having a good martini. <laughs> and it'll be gone in the morning. You won't feel happy anymore, but happiness is a feeling. Satisfaction lasts. And satisfaction means knowing that you make great choices. And you should get comfortable with the fact that that feeling in your tummy, when you wake up at three in the morning, go, oh my gosh, I spent so much at dinner, I feel so awful. Even when you know you can afford it and you rationalize it, that creature that comes out at three in the morning, it's always with you. So you have to learn to embrace it and say, well, that's, and I often will label it, you know, that's my lunatic. And I love you. I hear you. I see you. Tomorrow you'll be gone. And I just have to embrace you. You have to accept that your personality has different elements and embrace it and understand that that's not you. That is your other side speaking. It's your other elements of you coming out. Sometimes you're a loving husband. Sometimes you're an ass of a husband. And you have to expect that as long as you're aware and go, this is the guy I don't like, and I'm going to correct it. By the way, if you train yourself to be aware and just be conscious, and every time you get to a place where you know you're not proud of the way you feel, just being conscious of it will correct it because you'll do the right thing. But sometimes it takes somebody externally to say, you're being an ass. And you give people permission in your life to let you know that so that you can course correct. But over time, you train yourself to go, this is the part of me I don't love. And we have them. Again, it's you. So you've got to accept it's there, but you've got to learn to live with it because you're never going to feel good about money. If you haven't yet gotten there, then that's just your reality. And the more you embrace and accept that's a part of me and run toward it, the better. Because you'll be more honest about who you are. And again, accept that the way you perceive it will change as you mature and grow and the more you embrace it. But that feeling is still there. So you have tools, scalable tools that help people understand themselves, their relationship to money, help people understand their own and their spouse's relationships to money and how those two intersect. What about kids? How do you talk about kids and setting priorities for multi-generational clients, for example? Well, I'll just share one thing I know to be true for all human beings. I'll just share with you raising my three daughters, one who's now just finished college and is working, another one who's in college, another one in middle school. Two things that I've always believed to be true. 
your perspective about whether, and this is not my invention, this changed my life when I read it. It's the most important quote in my life. It's an Albert Einstein quote, which is the most important decision any man can make, and it's true for women too, of course, is whether they live in a kind or hostile universe. So the first and most important thing is, do you believe the world is happening for you or to you? Are you a victim or a shaper of your universe? And why does it matter so much? If you're the human being who believes that the world is happening for you, even the bad things, and that you live in a kind universe, you will work hard, you will be honest. When bad things happen, you will say they happen for a reason and I'm here to learn from them. It's basically a growth mindset. If you are of a mind that the world is happening to you, then you will blame everything around you. No amount of protection will ever make you feel safe. You will shirk responsibility and you will have the exact opposite of a radical ownership mindset. You will just say, I have nothing to do with it because the world's out to get me anyway. It's impossible to be successful. And even if you are, it's impossible to be happy if you keep waiting for the world to get you. And so why I love this quote by Albert Einstein is it implies two things that are really important. Number one, you have a choice that you get to choose whether you choose to be a victim or not. And the second is that that choice alone will guarantee either happiness or misery. It's a remarkable idea that by just choosing, I'm going to choose that I live in a kind world and it's ultimately fair, that will guarantee the happiness or misery no matter what your outcome is. So that's the first lesson I strongly share with my daughters. Everything's happened for a reason. You put yourself here, you get yourself out of it, or you don't, but you learn and grow from everything. And then the second one is, there's no shortcut to hard work. Like there is nothing in this world like hard work and persistence. And that there's no human who has accomplished anything and felt good about it afterwards who didn't earn it. Whether it's great athletes or great actors or even great workers, authors or anyone else, anyone, even a parent, anyone who has genuine appreciation and accomplishment and feels good about it, did the work. So those are the two most important guiding principles for me and for my kids. And I tell them, everything else is secondary. Have the right lens on the world that you are the controller of your choices. And number two, give everything you got to everything you do. Have a no compromise, put it all on the line because it might all end tomorrow. And then everything else, honestly, if you think the world is kind, you'll be a decent human being because if you're not, you know it's going to get you. And do you worry about the difference in the way they were raised and the way you were raised? A lot. And as my wife told me, I would never allow my kids to go through the abject terror that I went through in my childhood. And so I can't expect them to be as responsible or as uptight as I am about money. It's not going to happen. They're always going to be my daughters, and they're always going to be unconditionally loved and cherished. So all I can do is make sure that they're not spoiled. Do they finish when they come home with a $12 smoothie and it's uh, three quarters unfinished on the counter? What do you tell them? I tell them, I hope you know how hard I worked. Again, (laughs) this presumes it's my money, which in large part it will be. Uh, I hope you know how hard I worked for that. And I hope you know that it means something to me when you respect what I give you. People want to be, especially your kids, children want to be appreciated more than anything else by their parents. They want their respect. And I always say, you want my respect, then give me respect. And so 
they might throw it in the trash. They're probably not putting it on the kitchen counter right in front of me. So at the very least, I don't need to know about it. All right, just a few more questions and I'll let you go. From a purely mathematical standpoint, there is greater disparity within the 1% than there is in the other 99% of the population. How do you keep your very wealthy clients from comparing themselves to those slightly or greatly richer people to whom you know they're going to compare themselves? You don't, because everyone's going to do it. It's impossible in this day and age. And it's really hard for our children, by the way, with social media to not constantly have this FOMO going on. But you have to understand, it's not a fixed pie. If you want more, you can get more. But you want to make the sacrifices it takes to get to that place. And why does it matter to you what anyone else's life is doing? It's your life. And people are remarkably selfish. They don't care what you're up to and what you're doing, other than your very closest loved ones. They only use it as a comparison for their own accomplishments and failures. While you're looking up at that 1% that are ahead of you, there's another person right behind you looking at you going, oh my God, I want that person's life. And here's the thing that matters. None of that is relevant to your life. Every minute you spend looking at anyone else's life has nothing to do with you. You're just taking time away from your own lovely life. Now, here's what is true. The disparity is a huge, huge problem in society. I don't know that taxes fixes that because the reality is if you look at some of the proposals that are being made, it's going to make it literally impossible for anyone else to join that 1%. And I'm not for the wealthy never paying taxes. We, everyone should pay. Again, I pay 52% of my income. I think that's my fair share. I, I really do. Seems I work beyond June 30 and all of it goes I feel like I'm doing my fair share that and seems I'm not reasonable. taking any shortcuts. It feels like a fair share. 53% feels like a fair share. But it isn't to some people's mind. But taking me to a 7% tax won't change the fact that I have accomplished what I have because of our tax system, which allows for you to invest and grow. And the only way to get wealthy in America, really wealthy, is to you have to own equity in a growing enterprise. That's why so many people got wealthy owning real estate, selling their homes. You know, one of the wealthiest People that we find are the ones who owned a home, never sold it, rented up, bought another house, sold, and then over time, it compounded out, grew at 5 or 6% a year, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I've got something worth a million bucks. If that person then has to pay 50% in taxes, we're withholding them the ability to be millionaires themselves. So I worry a lot that we put tax systems in place that now make it almost impossible to climb out and join the 1%. I mean, it's what makes America so unique. And it's really sad to me that Russia has a 14% flat tax and we're sitting with, if you're in California, New York, a 53% tax. But again, my goal more than anything is to say, we've got to find ways to empower everybody to get a crack. The surfing is better in Laguna than it is in Vladivostok. I, I feel yeah, sure. I'm sure it is. I know that the rule of law is stronger. True. But along these lines, you know, another thing we read a lot about in the news every day is immigration. Shouldn't the United States want more people like you who came to the United States with 200 bucks in your pocket and built two large businesses, putting a lot of... I've made hundreds of millionaires in my life. Right. Literally. Creating. Uh, and, and how many jobs did you create? Along countless. The way? Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs. Here's the thing. The reality is uh, I'm not a politician, but the people who come to America, at least in my experience are the ones who most desperately want to be here. I am the proudest American. It drives my wife crazy sometimes because she's the fourth generation. How I will just boast about what unbelievable place America is with the most lovely people, with the most open-minded. 
And it is the greatest country in the world. And you go find yourself an immigrant who doesn't feel that way, a first-generation immigrant who doesn't kiss the ground that they live on. I mean, we went through a lot to get here. Now, whether we are welcome or not, that's not for me to say. I am an American now. I've paid my dues. And I welcome the people who are courageous enough to leave what they have to come here because they're not coming here for a free ride. I promise you that. Most everyone who's coming here is coming here to contribute and be members of society that they give to as well because they come from places where they never have the opportunity. And that is what allows us to attract such amazing people. So obviously, I'm an, as an immigrant, I feel a certain way, but I also understand we have a democracy and other people don't feel that way. So whatever people vote, I'm supportive of. What keeps you grounded? Life. We all screw up, but you just have to remember you could die tomorrow. And I never forget, this might be my last breath. The one secret, I meditate every day, but the one thing I do every night is I spend a lot of time beating myself up over things that I regret. And the next morning, I make amends to fix it by doing whatever I meant to do to, to feel like I did something. So I find that I've done this my whole life, beating myself up while it feels awful before I go to sleep also relieves me of saying I can fix these things tomorrow. And then I fix them. And then the next day I have a new list of things that I don't feel so good about. But I have found over the years that my regrets start to be much more trivial in nature and not as big. And, you know, honestly, we're all human. It's really important to remember we're all living through the same level of suffering and pain and ecstasy and happiness. And we all want the same thing. Like every person wants the same thing. I was very lucky in Zimbabwe. I went from being Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. And I went an incredible life lesson when my school went from about 700 white kids and 20 black kids to 680 black kids and 40 white kids. And I was one of the 40 white kids because my parents couldn't afford to move me to the private school or to South Africa, which all the other white kids did. And all of a sudden, these people that I'd been told were very different than me. Guess what? They were exactly the same as me. They just had different color. And we, we got just as tipsy and we played just as much rugby. They were, some were better athletes, some were worse. We fought the same fights. And I realized, my God, we're all the same. And we shouldn't label each other because we all want the same things. We want to avoid pain. We want to enjoy life. We want to take care of our responsibilities. And I don't care what religion you are, what color you are, what your background is. We all want the same things. So it's helpful to just never forget that we're all humans doing our best, wanting the best. And there might be some bad eggs, but generally even those bad eggs want the same things. Last question. Do you feel rich? No, I don't feel rich. I feel blessed and fortunate. I hate the word blessed. So I shouldn't use that word, but I do feel incredibly appreciative every day that uh, life has turned out the way it has and grateful, just grateful beyond words. But I, I don't think I'm able to feel rich. I don't know that there's a number that would ever make me feel that way. There you go. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I greatly appreciate your candor and your openness. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work if they're interested? Well, I have plenty of books. If you type in Joe Duran and Goldman Sachs, you'll find me. You will certainly can look for any one of our amazing advisors that they can share with you. And I have books out there that you're welcome to read. And again, just so you know, I care deeply about helping education for underprivileged kids. All the money from book sales goes to that. 
and it's a cause I care deeply about because I would like everybody to get the same chances I got. And many of them won't have the good fortune that I've had. So I care a lot about that, that particular course. Joe Durant, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. Have a great day. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Joe Duran, as I think you can tell. It just excites me when people who have articulate and passionate points of view about the things that I want to talk about here on Crazy Money, about money and happiness, work and meaning, and putting success into perspective, pleases me when I find somebody like Joe who's got it all so well thought out. I hope you found it as informative and as inspiring as I did. Let's jump to takeaways. I think we need more people like Joe. And that's not a statement about immigration, although I think a more clearly purposeful immigration policy for the United States would benefit everyone. I just mean that being around more hardworking, deep-thinking, philosophical warriors is good for all of us. And I'm pleased to know that there are people like Joe out there in corporate America helping his colleagues and his clients become better people. Secondly, Really great insight into how he felt when he sold his business that, you know, we might think, and he thought, a younger him thought that when he achieved this level of success, that everything would fall into line for him. And that indeed was not the case. Certainly, objectively, he had everything he could ever want. And I'm sure he felt better having a cushion than he did not knowing where his next meal and or rent check was going to come from. But it wasn't the be all end all. And I think that the more we could all really internalize that, that the more happy we would be working toward things instead of waiting and delaying happiness until we achieved them. Speaking of which, number three, as Joe said, quote unquote, nothing outside of you can bring satisfaction. You have to be happy with you. Your awards, your accolades, your third party recognition isn't going to make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside that it's the things like our families like building businesses, like helping other people achieve their potential that will make us feel like fuller human beings. Again, thanks to Joe Duran for making time, his team at Zeno Communications for hooking me up. Greatly appreciate that, Nick and team. Next week, I've got a great interview with Wharton professor Katie Milkman about her book, How to Change. She's a very fun and incredibly brilliant person. I know you will enjoy Until then, if you have a minute, drop a review for Crazy Money. Sure would appreciate a few stars and some kind words. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.